Welcome to this Federalist Society Faculty Book Podcast, discussing Professor Paul Horwitz's new book, First Amendment Institutions. Thank you for tuning in. First Amendment Institutions proposes a new approach to enforcing First Amendment laws by arguing that institutions who exercise First Amendment freedoms should have more autonomy to regulate their own affairs, as the courts, in a top-down rules approach, insufficiently account for the complexity of real-world situations. Horowitz suggests that such an approach would enhance these institutions' role in social and political life, thus making the state part of our social framework as opposed to an overbearing sovereign. Paul Horwitz, the Gordon Rosen Professor of Law at the University of Alabama School of Law, is joined by critical commenter Mark DiGirolami, Associate Professor of Law at St. John's University School of Law, to discuss the book. As always, the Federal Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. My name is Mark DiGirolami, and uh, I've got Paul Horwitz on the line with me. I'm at St. John's University School of Law, and we're here to talk about Paul's new book, First Amendment Institutions, which has been published by Harvard University Press this month. So perhaps the best way to begin is for you, Paul, to describe a little bit the themes of the book and the context against which you're writing the book, The First Amendment Law, as it presently exists. Sure. Let me uh, say a few words about it, and I think one word is autobiographical. I'm uh, very much a product of institutions and not just the law as an institution. I was a journalist before I went to law school and went to journalism school and imbibed the professional norms of journalism, which I, I think, notwithstanding the skepticism, are there and are still there, and watch journalism operate as an imperfectly but genuinely self-regulating institution. Now I'm an academic, and academics very much follow theories of norms, and we're very much part of an institution that has centuries of backing and experience and evolution behind it. And I've always been interested in First Amendment law, and that's certainly one of my areas. And, and in the last few years, a lot of study of law and religion, which again has a strong institutional component. And so the book was actually initially inspired, I really, the whole line of thinking was initially inspired by the the Grutter versus Bollinger opinion, the uh, Michigan Law School Affirmative Action opinion, in which the court started off by placing its review, particularly its review of whether there was a compelling interest on the part of the law school, in the context of the First Amendment, and saying that universities occupy a special niche in the First Amendment. And I think there's some real question, in fairness, how seriously the majority meant that and how much it was just kind of a convenient way of getting where it wanted to go. But it led me to ask, well, what if we took that idea seriously? And that really led me to think about a variety of institutions that play a fundamental role in the the infrastructure, as I put it, of of public discourse and in, in our social infrastructure. That certainly includes universities. It includes the press or journalism. It includes churches and religious organizations, and it includes private associations. And given the important role they play and given the sense in which they are animated by the values of those institutions and more broadly by the value of public discourse and and self-regulate in various ways according to those values, whether we might think of at least part of the First Amendment in more institutional terms and think about the importance 
important voice or role that, that institutions might have in developing First Amendment law and the ways in which courts can take seriously those institutions, take seriously their importance, and to some measure, maybe even to a large measure, defer to those institutions when issues concerning them arise. So that's the framework of the book, and I should say if listeners have questions about that or concerns, they should. It's, it's very much an alternative way of viewing a part of the First Amendment, and I try to start a conversation about how we might think in those terms and the values of doing so, but it's just the beginning of a conversation. I do think there are reasons that we can be skeptical or at least concerns that arise if we think about it this way. So there are costs as well as benefits to thinking in these terms, but I think it's an important and an interesting way to think about some of these issues that arise. Great. And so I take it that the way that courts presently analyze many of these First Amendment disputes is not sufficiently institutional. And you talk a little bit in the book about thinking in legal categories as opposed to in categories of fact, of sort of real-world fact, that what courts do when they analyze these First Amendment conflicts is that they analyze them according to somewhat rigid and legal categories that don't respond to the kind of facts as they are in the real world. Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. And that's really uh, the first part of the book. It kind of lays out, I would say, a perennial struggle in law and legal theory. And again, I think there's some biographical aspect here because anybody who's occupied more than one profession has gotten used to having more than one map of the world, more than one way of seeing things. And for the lawyer, the law student, the judge, I think we are very much trained to think in terms of legal categories that you go through law school, you're given issue spotters, and you end up seeing the world in terms of a series of legal categories, duties and breaches and other kind of legal dividing lines. And there is value to that, and I, I hope we'll talk about that because I'm not, not hearing at it by any means. But like any habit of mine, like any such worldview, it captures certain things and it misses others. And so I think the danger is that lawyers and judges can, to some degree, become captured by what, by what I call the, the lure of a contextuality, the desire very much to see things, not in terms of factual or social context, but in terms of the legal categories that we use to carve up the world. Now, that's not a bad thing entirely by any measure. There's lots of value to, to it. We can talk, I think, largely in terms of rule of law values, and we can also think of it in terms of institutional competence. Naturally, lawyers think in terms of legal categories because that's what they're good at doing. But there are dangers, too. There are concerns that we might miss relevant, salient facts about the world when we carve things up that way. Justice Holmes famously said, we must think things, not words. We must recognize that our language reflects a real world. And so there's some danger that an acontextual approach will end up being about the categories more than about what they're supposed to do or reflect. And so thinking a little more institutionally is a different way of thinking about about the law or about what the law covers. Let me ask you about that, because it seemed to me that in the book, the two big ideas of the book, 
two of many big ideas, but two of the ones that stuck out for me were, number one, this institutional turn, that it's useful and good for First Amendment law to at least pay more attention to the commonalities among institutions as opposed to using other sorts of categories that one sees more frequently in in First Amendment law. That's one kind of idea. And the second kind of idea is the one that you were just talking about, the idea that law can look at conflicts in the real world acontextually, and that it might not be such a good thing for law to ignore context. But I guess the question I have has to do with the interaction of those two ideas. And the way to summarize it might be, could one be a formalist about institutional categories? I think you described the work of Fred Schauer as being perhaps in this category, that, in other words, could one accept the first point while resisting the second point? Or is there a way in which these two big ideas, the institutional turn on the one hand and the movement away from a contextuality, fit together and really work together and promote one another? Let me say a couple of things about that as best I can. The first is, yes, I think it is possible to be at least somewhat formalist, if not uh, substantially formalist, and still have some interest in or respect for First Amendment institutionalism or institutionalism in general. The virtue of formalism is stability, predictability, clarity. It doesn't always achieve those virtues, but that's at least what it hopes to achieve. And somebody like Schauer, certainly, who was a great influence on this book, argues not that we should abandon any formal categories and see every case on its own merits, but that it is always at least a possibility that we can redraw our formal categories. I think that formalists can and should appreciate that, that it's not enough to talk about the virtues of a categorical or formal approach. We also have to consider what lines we are drawing, what resources we're using in coming up with our formal categories. To take an absurd example, we could say, well, if the plaintiff has red hair, we'll decide these cases one way. If the plaintiff has black hair, we'll decide them another way. Now, that would be predictable, relatively predictable, and relatively stable, but they would be terrible categories. I think we all agree. So I think what Schauer is saying is there is a danger when the categories themselves are either not doing enough work or not doing the right work and are missing morally relevant or socially relevant uh, facts. And so we might draw our formal categories more on the basis of institutions rather than uh, somewhat more abstract legal concepts. So that's one thing I'd say. So it's certainly possible. And, and I should say, again, trying to start a conversation here and not absolutely resolve it, and I, I kind of give a, a range of approaches. And my own view is probably not as formalist as uh, Shower's. I'm arguing for institutionalism rather than a kind of a legal acontextuality, but I'm not arguing that we have to look at every single case on its own merits. I'm suggesting that there are some institutions in our social infrastructure that, broadly speaking, are recognizable and important and that they should play a larger role in those kinds of cases. And the other thing I'd say, and this kind of goes to again, really the first half of the book and the 
the invitation on a larger level to think about institutionalism and the institutional turn is what we often have presently is neither entirely one nor the other. It's not completely formal and it's not completely contextual. So courts do, I think, often implicitly recognize that they're dealing with particular institutions and that those institutions matter. And sometimes that can sit uneasily with their ostensible formalism or acontextuality. And in that scenario, you, you might end up having, it's not the worst of both worlds, but anyways, not the best of either world. But you might have seemingly formal decisions and making distinctions, but lacking the vocabulary with which to do it. And so you end up with a doctrine that purports to be formal or acontextual, but ends up being more incoherent. Or it gives us some value in as much as it recognizes that, say, a church is an important institution. And in doing so, though, while, while trying to retain some kind of acontextual language, ends up undermining some of those rule of values that are really the appeal of formalism, like predictability and stability. So when we think about, say, an institutional turn or an institutional approach, and the questions it raises, because I do think it raises questions as well as having virtues, we should compare it fairly to the imperfections of the current contextual approach and not to some idealized version. Okay, well, that's very helpful. And so since we've talked a little bit about the first half, let's talk a little bit about the second half of the book. Sure. And I guess, and, the first, and let me say that the, the yeah. second half is an effort to look at institutions on the ground, to, to look at a particular number of institutions and the kinds of issues that arise with respect to those institutions and what makes those institutions important or distinct and how we might deal with them under an institutional approach. Okay, good, good. And so I guess the place that I'd like to start, since since both of us write in religious liberty, and since I am very familiar with some of your earlier work on sphere sovereignty, it seems like your work on religious liberty is in some ways at the root of this book. You even, you've mentioned it in your introductory comments, in the sense that ideas about institutional autonomy or even institutional sovereignty, seem to have a kind of resonance and historical root in ideas of traditional, very historically grounded ideas of religious liberty. And I guess the additional question is whether those ideas of sphere sovereignty that you've written about in the ideas of Abraham Kuyper, for example, are translatable or can be used in other First Amendment contexts? And I guess the, the way to put the question in perhaps a more pointed way is, isn't there a difference between thinking about sphere sovereignty when one is talking about the religion clauses and thinking about sphere sovereignty when one is talking about First Amendment institutions more generally, like libraries? Because the idea of sphere sovereignty as to the religion clauses depends upon much older notions of different jurisdictions of power. So that's a long-winded, but I think coherent question. <laughs> it is, and it's a useful question, too. And let me say to those who are listening that, that Mark has a wonderful book on religious liberty. This is, this is your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, say that. 
Let me say a few things. Now, first of all, again, for those who are kind of entering into the discussion in Medias Res, the idea of sphere of sovereignty that comes up particularly in my chapter on religions or churches as First Amendment institutions comes from, as Mark noted, the work of Abraham Kuyper. And I should say I'm indebted to a student of mine, former student at Notre Dame Law School, for introducing me to his work. And Kuyper was a neo-Calvinist writer and politician who talked about the idea that from his religious and Calvinist perspective, there were a variety of spheres, all of them really related to God's workings in the social world, each of them having its own role, importance, and indeed sovereignty. And the church was one, the family was another, the state was another, although he saw the state as playing largely a kind of an artificial or coordinating role between these different spheres. And that, I found, a very provocative way to think about religion and about the role of churches in law and religion. We often talk about individual worshippers, but uh, in recent years, for a variety of reasons, people have also begun to focus on religious organizations or institutions and the law, the recent Hosanna Tabor case being an important example. And those of us who have been kind of writing and thinking in this area have certainly thought a lot about the history involved, because as Mark notes, really the history of Western civilization is a long history of contestation between different jurisdictions about jurisdictionality, about what constitutes a sovereign body, and how these different sovereigns should relate to each other. And a perennial concern, and and one that I'm I'm sure is relevant to many people who may find themselves in the uh, precincts of the Federalist Society, is if we fail to respect the existence of these other sovereigns, if we want to call them that, then the state can become monistic, monomaniacal. It can take primacy such that any other organization, whether it's the Christian Legal Society or the Roman Catholic Church or a university or anything, exists by the grace of the state. And there are people, I would put myself among them, who say that that is a danger. It's a poor way to think about our overall social structure and that it's important to recognize that the state is not all there is, that our social infrastructure, including the infrastructure of what we call public discourse, public discussion and speech, contains within it a variety of institutions, in many respects co-equal institutions. Now, I should say a couple of things, I think. First, that development is not just about churches. So one question you ask is, can this sphere sovereignty idea translate or be applied other than to churches? And I think the answer is yes. You know, the same medieval history that gives us the church as an institution in competition with the state gives us the university as an important developing medieval institution, gives us towns, cities, municipalities as important quasi-sovereign institutions, and uh, certainly later, when we get to the Enlightenment period, gives us the development of the press, not as a sovereign institution, but as an institution that exists outside of 
government, exists as a check on government, as a, a way of monitoring government, and so again plays kind of a almost antagonistic role with the state. So I do think that that idea translates, and I think one of the things I do in trying to identify particular First Amendment institutions is to ask, are they long-recognized, well-established institutions that really have grown up with the modern state so that we shouldn't lose sight of their importance and independence? And, and the last thing I'll say is, you know, once you've published a book, you don't stop thinking about the issues, you know, you rest from your labors for a little while, but then you start asking yourself questions. And certainly, when we talk in terms of sovereigns or jurisdictions, it's a powerful language and therefore also a dangerous one. What it means to talk about sovereignty or to call these institutions sovereign is evocative, but maybe sometimes too evocative. And certainly, some of my good friends in the scholarly community have, and particularly in the law and religion area, have challenged the idea that we talk about churches as being genuinely sovereign. After all, the state still makes decisions. In the Hosanna Tabor case, it still says something about who constitutes a ministerial employee, and to the extent that it recognizes some church autonomy, it's still the state recognizing that church autonomy. So the idea of sovereignty may be at times overly powerful. But I think it's also useful as a reminder that the state is one part of a broader structure of institutions and so should be somewhat modest about its role within that structure. And just as a quick follow-up, it seems to me that one of the considerations that you mentioned a number of times is that is this issue about reflexive lawmaking, that institutions ought to be permitted that it's a good thing for institutions to, in some ways, contribute to the lawmaking function, particularly when the institutions are acting according to, oh, what we might think of in traditional or standard ways. So universities, to give an example, might deserve deference from courts. In fact, you mentioned this early on as you were talking about the affirmative action case, that universities might deserve deference from courts when they act according to or within zones of discretion that pertain traditionally to universities, and the same for libraries or the press and so on. And when they don't act according to those traditionally accepted professional standards, then they don't deserve this kind of institutional deference. Do I have that right? Is that an accurate description of this idea of reflexive law? And the other question I have is, do you think that that is a Well, you even mentioned, you even say in the book that it's a conservative view that is small c conservative, not politically conservative, Mm but conservative in a traditionalist sense, that you think well of institutions which have survived the test of time and which have developed a set of somewhat fixed, although changeable, internal norms. Is that fair? Sure. So let me take this, I think, in more or less three steps. So let's start by talking about deference, uh, maybe four steps. Let's start by talking about deference. So the basic idea, one that is certainly familiar to anybody who's read a case like Chevron or read any number of academic freedom cases, is these institutions are important. They fill an important particular function in public discourse, and courts may lack, again, on a strong view, the jurisdiction, but on a weaker view, the competence to fully appreciate that. And so they should defer, and do, I should say, even currently, defer regularly to these institutions. So a university says, 
This is a core aspect of what we do. We know better than you how to make academic decisions, and you ought to defer to us. And that regularly happens within limits, but it happens. So we start there. Then we think about how courts should think about or institutionalize that kind of deference or that kind of respect for institutions. And a substantial body of recent scholarship over the last 15 or 20 years, a lot of it coming out of administrative law, but not only there, has talked about reflexiveness or democratic experimentalism. And the idea is, rather than a kind of top-down command and control approach to regulation, regulation of regulated industries and other things, we should view these regulated parties as partners in an important sense. Give them an opportunity to develop best standards, to learn from their actions, and give the courts an opportunity to learn what these institutions do and how they can best do it. To take one example, sexual harassment law. The courts might not say, here's what you have to do and here's how your employer has to behave. Here's a rigid set of guidelines, and that might not make sense. Rather, they'll say, we'll look at the emerging best practices, we'll look at what you're doing, and to the extent that you are making serious efforts within your expertise to address these problems, you'll have something of a safe harbor. There doesn't need to be only one precise way of dealing with sexual harassment. And so that's reflexiveness, and the value of it is that it at least potentially learns from experience and incorporates the expertise of the regulated party. And so we can apply that idea to First Amendment institutions. Again, take a university. We can ask, what are emerging practices in the university with respect to, say, academic freedom or academic decision-making? And there may be some range, and at some point we may appreciate from experience or from the consensus of the university community that some options drop out, that some things are genuinely worse practices. So that's two. Third thing I want to emphasize is institutional pluralism. It's a very important idea to me, to the book, and one that I think is often underappreciated, although there are people who have talked about it. Again, I think people on various political stripes. John Garvey, great former dean at Boston College, was the president of the ILS, the Association of American Law Schools. And his theme for the year, coming out of a religiously affiliated institution, was institutional pluralism, and the idea that not all law schools have to follow precisely the same pattern, that there is room for a diversity of approaches. And Brian Tamanha, writing about law school reform recently, has kind of echoed that theme in a, in a different context. But I think institutional pluralism is very important in this area for two reasons. First of all, because institutions are capable of change over time. Newspapers and the press generally don't look exactly the same now that they, than they did 100 or 200 years ago, nor do universities. It's constrained and slow change, but it does happen. And second, that there is room for more than one vision of the university. Now, there may be boundaries to that, but we should appreciate when we're deferring and conversely when we're setting limits to deference that not Every university has to have precisely the same mission, but not every news organization or church has to have precisely the same mission. And so when we defer, we should also not take too rigid a view of what that institution's 
function is, or, or at least we should allow for the possibility of difference among these institutions. I take it that the deference that you support is it's fairly substantial deference, just in order, in some senses, to let the institution grow and change. I think that's right. And then there's the fourth and final aspect of this, which is self-regulation. So I'm not a total skeptic about institutions, even in this age of skepticism about institutions. And again, maybe my experience with the press is relevant to that. I think there are a lot of people who are very skeptical about the press and understand why, but my experience was one of meaningful, although imperfect, professionalism. And I would say the same thing about churches. There are many people who are skeptical about churches and who can point to all the sins of churches as organizations, but I'm not one of those people without in any way ignoring their failings. I also think that they show constantly that they are capable of mindfulness and self-regulation. But that self-regulation is important. It's important as a basis for identifying these institutions and giving them deference. It's important to allow them to evolve and respond to circumstances on the ground. And it's important as a moral obligation. I think one of the things that I stress in this book and that I've also stressed in talking about the ministerial exception and other work is that kind of a broader view of this infrastructure of public discourse should lead us not to say, look, if the state doesn't regulate these institutions, then we're lost and they're going to do terrible things, nor to say, well, they're autonomous and that's the end of the discussion, but rather it should lead to a kind of an ongoing productive engagement with these institutions, just as we engage with the state as citizens and monitor it and ask it to do better, and just as we expect and hope for our representatives to reflect on their role, so we should expect that of institutions. And when institutions fail, we should criticize them. When people belong to institutions like churches or the press or universities, then they have an obligation to be deeply involved in criticism and reform. And we don't have to think of the law and the courts as the only place where monitoring and reform and criticism take place, because they can and should happen within the institutions, and people as citizens and participants in public discourse should feel free to engage and criticize those institutions. Well, that's excellent, Paul. Thank you very much. We haven't talked about many, many aspects of that. We haven't even talked about the government yet, but it's probably best to stop there. The book, again, is First Amendment Institutions by Paul Horowitz. It's a wonderful book, and it's available now. Thanks so much, Paul, for sharing your thoughts about the book. Well, thank you, Mark, and thank you also to the Federalist Society. I'm very grateful. Thank you for listening to this faculty book podcast. For more podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at www.federalistsociety.org forward slash multimedia.